This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Especially, I think the U.S. actually has more of a helping culture than some other countries. Mm. I, for, at least from my perspective, maybe that's interesting for you. But in Europe, you know, there's a, there's a strong social system from the government very often. So people feel like this is all taken care of already. Hey, welcome to Ian Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking, and this week we are talking to one of the authors of The Leading Brain, a powerful science-based strategies for achieving peak performance. I really got a lot out of reading this book. Um, the science that goes into leadership was amazing, and I like how uh, Frederic um, sums up the that leadership starts with the brain. However, before we get into the interview, there's been a lot of discussions about how to engage citizen preparedness. And because of that, I looked forward and I reached out to a couple people that are doing just that. And one is the Virginia Civil Defense um, Organization. It's a nonprofit organization out of Virginia and the Texas Disaster Incorporated. And I'm really excited that people are taking the direction of Brock Long and building the culture of preparedness. I'm really excited about that. And if you'd like to learn more about what Brock Long was saying, you can find us on www.emweekly.com and also at the forums.emweekly.com. Look for us on Facebook, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, and Twitter. Those locations, uh, you'll find us there. You can join the conversation. Love to have you. What do you think of the culture of preparedness? Now, let's learn about the leading brain. I'm excited to have the author, or one of the authors of The Leading Brain with me. It's uh, Frederica Fabritas, and uh, she's uh, you know coming from uh, from Germany right now. It's really exciting to, to, to do this internationally. And I, I read the book here, and what I thought about this here is that we can use this as, as emergency managers and those of us that are leading large, complex organizations, um, how to make them work smoother. And so Frederica agreed to come on the show and, and I'm happy to have her. Frederica, welcome to Ian Weekly. It's a pleasure. Hello. Frederica, how did you get involved with this specific research with the leading brain? Well, what happened is, you know, I always wanted to understand why people behave the way they do. That's been driving my motivation. I always wanted to understand why some people hate each other while others get along, why some people work a lot while others don't are not as motivated you know i wanted to understand what makes these people tick and so i studied neuroscience in particular neuropsychology and did some research in that area but then i felt i was very far away from people anyhow when studying in a, in a laboratory with two monkeys and so i joined um, the consultancy mckinsey instead and i worked in management consulting for a couple of years and there i realized i was helping companies making better financial performance but i wasn't so close to people either so in the end i wanted to bring those two fields together and that's what i've done with this book so i wanted to you know look somebody asked me 
how can neuroscience help leaders? And I, I was really wondering about this question. So I went back to the literature and looked at everything we can find on, you know, how to perform better, how to think better, how to regulate your emotions, how to learn better, how to innovate, um, how to make better decisions, how to foster an environment for, you know, collaboration and trust. And I tried to put this all together and to make it very applicable for the large organizations. So that's basically, you know, I, I, I took a look at all the different studies at the moment in neuroscience and I tried to apply them to a business setting. So as you read through the book, there are some really great nuggets of information in here that I, I really took. And, and the way I read books is I, as I take notes, I underline things that I think are important to me. I write in the margins. Those that are book purists probably, uh, you know, cringe at the fact that I do this. But, you know, one of the things I really took away from the idea here is some like, you know, mindful practices and like the idea of the, uh, of your stop, your stop, take a breath, observe and proceed. That's really kind of important for what, a lot, what we do here as emergency managers is sometimes we get so caught up in stuff that we don't stop to really think about what our processes is. Can you talk a little bit about that making the mindful habit? Yes. Well, basically it's about the idea that you need to be fully present in the moment for your brain to perform at its best because we tend to be very distracted you know in business people multitask um, the, the world is full of distractions and focus is very difficult and mindfulness-based stress reduction is a program that helps you to learn to be fully present in the moment so you go through a structured program where you do certain meditation exercises and basically after just eight weeks you have a different brain your prefrontal cortex works better your insula and your social pathways work better which are important for social interactions the prefrontal cortex is important for logical thinking a lot of things happen in your brain when you do mindfulness practice and they just make you more efficient and the stop exercise, well, I didn't come up with that myself. It's, it's a classical exercise. I just took this because I think for managers, it's very unrealistic that everyone wants to meditate for half an hour every day. You know, some people will do that, but people have families, people have jobs, people have things to do. So I wanted to find an exercise that's really easy to do. And basically what you do in these stop exercises that you say, well, we could do it right now together. We could say, you know, so we take a moment, we stop. Then we take a breath, then we observe. And when you observe, what you basically do is you think a moment about what's going on. How do you feel at the moment? What is going on with the people around you? You know, how's your body feeling at that moment? And then you take a decision on how to proceed. And that's the P in the stop exercise. So then you can either, right now, for example, if you and I decided that we're both just totally stressed out and we hate this interview, we could just decide to stop it here. <laughs> or if we, you know, you know, you can make, right. you can always make a decision. And very often we are so caught up in our routines and in our life that we never think we never take this time to reflect for a moment on what we're actually doing. So this is a very simple exercise that you can do secretively because I think in a business setting, very often people, you know, they don't want to be caught doing crazy exercises 
you know, you, you don't want to put out a yoga mat and do silly exercises while your colleagues look at you. You can do the top exercise in a meeting. You can do it anywhere, anytime. And I think that's very powerful for people to have. What I took away from that is that, and sometimes in our job as emergency managers, we're under extreme stress, extreme stressful situations, and being able to take that 30 seconds or, or, or 60 seconds if you need to, to stop and reflect on what really is going on to make a proper decision could really make a difference in, in how we proceed forward. Because sometimes we make snap decisions and we have to, you know, turn around and, and, and redo them because they were the, they're going the wrong direction. So I think slowing that process down, that thought process is, is really important, especially when you're making these major decisions that impact people's lives. Yes, and you know that originally the mindfulness practice was developed um, first with in the Harvard Medical Program to help doctors who perform surgery to be more mindful because you can basically make mistakes and then somebody dies, mm -hmm. right? And it's similar for your profession. So I think it's very important to be mindful that your, your actions have a lot of impact. They can really make the difference. So, so it's good to, to have that ability. And when people are more mindful, they make less mistakes. They are more present. They're also happier. And it helps you also to regulate your emotions. So it has only benefits. So stepping back a little bit in, in the book, you talk a lot about the the misnomer of the multitasking where it's really no one really multitask is through your brain being able to switch between tasks really fast. Why do we think, and especially in America, that multitasking and the ability to have, you know, 17 things going on at the same time and be able to do all this stuff is a good thing when realistically you don't perform a peak. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. You know, from my perspective, I think it's, it's actually an addiction. Because if you think about it, our brain loves novelty. We have a system in our brain, the reward system and the limbic system, which reacts to new things, new exciting things. And when something new happens, then dopamine is triggered. Okay. So when a new email arrives and when you get a new phone call or when somebody steps into your office, when something happens, we tend to turn our attention to this because it could be something potentially rewarding. And that's also why people get so easily addicted to their cell phones. You, you know that there was research that showed that there's less drug use in teenagers recently, but there's more cell phone use mm. because it triggers the same brain area. So I think one reason is because of the dopamine. We, we tend to get addicted to having a lot of things going on at the same time because we tend to, to react to new information because this makes us survive. You know, we don't want to miss out on, on relevant information. And the second thing is the social nature of multitasking. When we look at all these devices that make us multitask, like phones and, and computers and our cell phones, very often there's a social component behind it because we expect calls from our colleagues or our boss or our clients or from family or friends. And you have to understand that in the brain, social information has priority. We tend to be very sensitive to all kinds of social information. So basically, when something, when we multitask, we do what our brain is wired to do. We react to new things and we react to social information. And these, the combination of the two makes it very irresistible. So I actually think it's, it's not just that people think it's cool to be busy and impressive to be busy, but I think we're actually addicted to multitasking. 
huh, that kind of makes me think about like how as, as kids growing up and, and I, I grew up in the age without cell phones obviously and but even then we were really encouraged through the school system to to be not necessarily multitasking but to be involved with everything right I mean like if you weren't going to get into college unless you were you know in student government and on the sports teams and you know part of the key club and all these type of things and, and to be just busy at all times and, and no one has ever taught us how to you know step back and, and really understand what we're doing and take that breath and, and being able to to uh, to be focusing in, in one particular thing at a time, I think that's one of the issues that we have here in the United States of why we're all all over the place at times. I was gonna say because you you, you kind of really delve into this, and well, that's what I got out of this book is that realistically you have to be, and I, and I know people have said it with less words, uh, and what I mean by that is that the idea of being present is very important, not just to your you know your work life, but just also for your brain health, right? Absolutely, because when we, you know, when we constantly multitask and when we're constantly connected to the internet and these things, it tends to drop our IQ. So it has been shown, you know, there was a research article coming out a few years ago and it said multitasking has a similar impact on your brain like marijuana. And um, (laughs) that's what happens. You get stressed also by this overload of information and it can really drop your IQ and it can make you miserable. You know, uh, when you have constant and chronic stress, your brain goes into something that is called allostatic load. And then a part of your brain that's called the amygdala, which is crucial for processing negative information, grows and gets bigger as well. So what you turn out with is a brain that gets even more sensitive to negative information and then you get more stress and then it is like a cycle of, that just gets worse and worse. So I know that one of the things, and you guys address that in the book as well, is the concept that as we get as older as we're adults, that we can't learn new tricks. That, you know, the idea of of going back to school or learning a foreign language or, or learning a new skill, uh, once you get past a certain age, it's impossible to do. It's just your brain just doesn't work. But you guys kind of break that that concept. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how our brain continues to grow and how we can actually improve the way our brain works? Yes. Recent neuroscience shows that learning is possible at all ages. You can always grow your brain and you can always improve. You know that when I went to school, they taught us that there won't be any new neurons, that your brain is kind of built when you're a teenager, a child, and then after that, there's only decay. You know, there's only loss of neurons. And that's just not true. So the only thing that I can see that keeps adults from learning is their technique because very often um, people think that it's all over. They think, uh, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks and they don't even try to learn something new. And when they try to learn, they do it the wrong way. So I'd like, like to show you how you can do a better job at learning at all ages. I think the key is um, emotional relevance. Mm. If you think about it, when children learn, everything is important to them. They don't sit down, you know, I'm now speaking about small children, but they don't sit down with a boring book in a corner and torture themselves with the information and think that this is learning. They play. 
and that's how they learn. And also adults would learn best in a playful environment. Because if you think about it, our brain is doing basically two things in a new learning situation. You have the hippocampus, which is the part in the brain that is important for the intake of new information. And basically the hippocampus is asking himself, you know, is this information really new? And is this information really emotionally relevant? And only when those two things come together, our brain decides to put this new information into long-term memory. And very often when adults learn, they, you know, they do it in a very boring way. I'm an, I tend, you know, I happen to be an expert on um, language learning. I speak six languages myself because I studied how the brain processes languages and how you can learn languages. And it's just not true that only children can learn a new language. The only thing that happens is that when adults go to a language class, they read very boring books, you know, where it says Peter walks the dog and mom says hello, but it's not emotionally relevant to learn that language. And then your brain won't learn. For children, it's relevant to learn that language because they want to understand what their mom is saying or their dad. You know, they need to learn the language to interact with other people. So they make a good job in learning it. If you learn a new language, you need to find a way to, to make it emotionally relevant. Hmm. And if you look at the brain in the hippocampus, which is important for the intake of new information, it's not located in the prefrontal cortex, which is the part for rational thinking and decision making and analytical processing. Our hippocampus is located right in the middle of the limbic system, which is where emotions are processed. Learning is an emotional process. Uh, that, you know, that makes a lot of sense because one of the things that we're trying to do as emergency managers all the time is educate the public. And I, I think what we do wrong is we try to scare people into being ready. You know, we talk about the big disaster, the big earthquake, the, the you know, this, this, that, and, you know, it's, it's, in, a, it's in, a, uh, in a scary way. And I don't know if that's working or not. Obviously, it's not working because our, our, the, our preparedness levels in the United States, and, and I'm assuming that the rest of the world probably follows the same, same model without doing the research, mm-hmm. is somewhere between um, 1% and, and 5% of the population being ready for disasters. And let's talk about people who live in areas like, you know, California with earthquakes or the Midwest with with the uh, uh, tornadoes, you know, in, in the south with in the southwest with the hurricanes. You know, people just, uh, just don't want to be ready. Maybe if we can make the preparedness portion of it more fun and not scary, maybe we get more people that are that would take it seriously. What do you think? You know, that's so interesting because if you think about it, negative learning is the strongest form of learning. So basically, the idea in theory is good. If you use what scientists call aversive conditioning, it's a very strong form of learning. To give you an example, they had an experiment where they gave people electrical shocks, and then they had somebody watch somebody else receiving the shocks. And every time before the shocks came on, they would show blue square, okay? And afterwards, they looked at people's reactions to the blue square, And the ones who had actually received the electrical shocks, they had a strong reaction. And those who had only watched, they had a reaction that was just as strong. (laughs) So what happened was that fear is very strong. If your mother tells you, you know, there's a snake in the living room, you run out, you don't 
unless you're very, you know, maybe not for the population of the people listening to this podcast, <laughs> but, but in general, you know, most people would just run away and not go and find out what kind of snake and, you know, you, you just leave the house. You think it's best if I, you know, get as far away from the snake as possible. Right. And, and you know, people learn from other people's mistakes. In large organizations, I see, see this very often when a new CEO comes, the first thing he or she does is to get rid of some people. Everybody's watching and then you just know, you know, this will happen to me if I don't follow this new guidelines. Right. So people are very sensitive to negative information. So in theory, this should work very well, but I can explain why it's not. It's because negative learning works best to tell you what not to do. Mm. Negative learning tells you, you know, don't put your hand on the hot stuff. Right. No, don't walk. I don't know, you know, don't do this, don't do that. Neg you know, don't do this or you will go to jail. Right. Right. Don't kill somebody, things like that. So we learn what not to do. But in your example, what you want is for people to do something positive, to, to actively do something. And, and, and negative learning is very good for inhibiting undesired behavior, but it also kind of blocks your entire brain. So negative learning is great for telling people what not to do in health and safety situations or when it comes to compliance or with some legal things. But if you want people to actually do something, to be proactive, to, to buy water they can put in their basement so they have that in case an emergency happens, they won't do that. So if you want people to be active and innovative and proactive, you need to find more positive ways. Huh, that makes me kind of now, kind of moving on from that's that's that makes making me chew my uh, my brain a little bit here. That's kind of cool, actually. So now talking about that and, and, the, and the impact, and you you have an example in the book regarding how people can learn from others, and even so much so that if somebody who is sitting on the couch watching uh, people working out, that they actually have gain muscle uh, fiber. How does that work? The rest of that story when we return from our break. Exercises are a cornerstone of emergency preparedness, but can be costly, time-consuming, and complicated. TTX Vault can ease the exercise planning process with our wide array of tabletop, drill, and functional exercise packages that are fully adjustable. Once you choose the appropriate discipline and emergency scenario, you'll receive the exercise, all HSEEP suggested paperwork pre-filled out, access to our online simulation environment, Chelsea County, USA, and 30 minutes of phone consultation. Get your time back at ttxvault.com. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we connect people with the latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter. Welcome back from that quick break, and thank you so much for listening to the sponsors because without them, we couldn't do what we're doing here at Ian Weekly. And hit them up, check them out, say hi, tell them that uh, we sent you. Now for the rest of the story. If somebody who is sitting on the couch watching uh, people working out, that they actually have gain muscle uh, fiber, how does that work? Well, 
what happens is that, for example, if you only imagine that you're working out, you will already grow muscles. I don't know. I, I know very recently, for example, there was a study that showed that if you are injured in, in one leg, for example, you should work out the other leg. Normally, you would maybe say, don't work out at all. Otherwise, afterwards, you have a very strong right leg and then your left leg is imbalanced or something like this if you can't move it. But it shows that when we activate the neuronal pathways that help us control our emotions, we also make it easier for our muscles to grow. You know, our muscles receive a signal then from the brain that we want them to grow. So actually, when it comes to things like playing the piano, or working out, just imagining the task can already help you improve your performance. I know it seems crazy, but it, it really works this way because your brain and your body, it's not a one-way road, it's a two-way road. Hmm. Um, you get signals from your body to your brain, but also from your brain to your body, and there's a lot of interaction between those two. So kind of keep on this pathway here. So when people in California watched the towers go down in New York, were they actually feeling the same or at least close to the same fear and anxiety that were happening in people that were actually affected by the tower falling? That is very difficult for me to answer. You know, I don't want to judge. It's difficult to, to say it's an interesting question, but you know, I'm afraid that if I say something, I don't want to invalidate anybody's fear and say they have just as much fear as those because it's a very sensitive topic. But overall, I would say watching, well, what happens or what I can say is what happens in these situations is that when we see other people in pain, a system in our brain is activated that is called the mirror neuron system. Mm. And basically, our mirror neuron system is a system of neurons that are active both when you do something or when you watch somebody else do the very same thing. So when we see somebody getting hurt, we feel pain in our brain as well. Our pain center gets activated. Mm. We are very much more social than we used to think. Actually, we are very cooperative species, you know? We survive because we collaborate, because we trust each other, because we build good relationships to the people around us. And obviously, when people we can relate to get hurt, um, this hurts us a lot. But research also shows that we react more strongly to people we like or people we perceive as similar to ourselves. And I think this explains why people tend to have more empathy for people suffering. So basically what happens is that our mirror neuron system responds more strongly to people we perceive as similar to ourselves or that we see as relevant to ourselves. And this means that if somebody very far away in some tribe in Africa gets hurt, and you hear about this in the news, maybe you don't react as strongly as when you hear that somebody in your neighbor community has the very same problem, you know? Hmm. We, we tend to react more strongly to people we perceive as close to ourselves. So I, I guess then kind of going on top of that, is this why we have more volunteers come out to help out after uh, a disaster occurs? You know, even like... 
people were sending people to Houston, and uh, when the hurricanes came in, we were sending volunteers to Puerto Rico to help out over there. Is this why, like, after a disaster occurs, you have this flood of people willing to help compared to on what we call blue sky days? Uh, what do you mean? Um, exp- oh, please explain again. <laughs> sorry, blue, blue sky days are good days, like when there's no disaster going on. So basically what you see is like when, a, when a, an emergency occurs, there's a lot of people that decide to come out to volunteer to help out. Where if, you know, on a, on a daily basis, they won't even drive down the road. You won't even see them allow somebody to, you know, change lanes. But when a disaster occurs, people tend to be more empathetic, I suppose, to, to their yes. fellow human being. Yes, I think that's what happens. And research shows that, you know, it kind of triggers our empathy network when we feel like, you know, this could have happened to us and it's salient. And I think especially, I think the U.S. actually has more of a helping culture than some other countries, mm. uh, for, at least from my perspective. Maybe that's interesting for you. But in Europe, you know, there's a, there's a strong social system from the government very often. So people feel like this is all taken care of already. You know, if somebody is unemployed or, you know, everybody has health care. So to a certain degree, I think people feel less responsible to help than in the U.S. where you have less social welfare overall. You see what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so I always have the impression from, you know, that in the U.S., people are more helpful in general. It's more part of the culture to to be engaged in, you know, neighborhood activities and things like this, helping the people around you. It's funny because, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, after the 9-11 happened, for at least a good four or five months, you know, people on the freeway were, were, were pleasant to each other. They weren't, you know, flipping each other off and, and cutting each other off. Everybody was very pleasant. And then, you know, obviously as, as time goes down, people get back to their own, to their own norms. But you see this ebb and flow of outpouring of support. And maybe it is that, maybe it is the fact that we here know that we have to help each other because we can't really rely upon uh, government help. That's an interesting uh, point uh, right and- there. Yes, and in addition to that, you know, the strongest thing that can unite a community is an external threat. Mm. So in, in social science, you can see this effect of in-group and out-groups. You know, very often in a business setting, I see this, some teams are fighting, but then once they go through a difficult situation together, after that, they become best friends, you know, very close and really trust each other because when something threatful happens or brain triggers dopamine um, which is a neurochemical that is involved in you know a little bit in, in adventurous situations to put it neutrally and a dopamine will trigger the release of oxytocin and oxytocin is a neurochemical that is relevant for pair bonding it's released when people fall in love it's released when a baby is born mm. it helps us create good relationships and i think if in a threat situation in an emergency situation a lot of oxytocin is triggered and this strengthens the relationship of people in this situation that's kind of it. You know, when you start getting into the science of, of how your brain works, you know, during crisis, it's kind of cool because, I mean, obviously, most of us that are 
you know part of this uh, this podcast and and in this industry uh, we live in the in the land of crisis you know and to see people come together and and to do this and to have a actually a scientific reason why things are happening kind of uh, it kind of makes it kind of cool for me yeah <laughs> so I want to talk a little, again going a little bit back into the book. I want to talk a little bit about the Eureka moment. And you tell a story, you know, about the guy, he's in the bathtub. I forget his name. He's just... Uh, uh, Archimedes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And he's in the bathtub and he... And he comes up with a, a great idea and Eureka and he runs down the streets of Syracuse yelling Eureka. How does that, you know, work? Because it happened to me too. Like for me, you know, you're, you're taking a shower or you're washing the dishes or you're mowing the lawn and all of a sudden you go, that's the solution. And you stop what you have to do and you write it down so you don't forget. How does, why does our brain work like that? Why does it just come from the resources of the brain and come up forth and when you're doing some mundane thing? Well, the interesting thing is that, you know, these aha moments, they happen when your brain makes connections that have never been made before. Usually you have to think of our brain as a, as a neuronal network. So there's always certain brain areas that tend to interact with each other. You know, they always play together. So, for example, if you sit at your desk and you try to think about a problem from a logical point of view, you will engage your prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that you use for logical thinking and rational analysis and among other things. When you, let's say, go for a walk or you sing a song or you engage in some completely different activity, you also engage other brain areas right? Like your motor cortex for body movement. If maybe you're taking a walk in nature, you will hear, hear the bird sing and you will, this will involve your auditory cortex that is processing auditory information. And you see beautiful trees and flowers, especially in California. So you get a lot of visual input as well. And sometimes in these situations, your brain will suddenly make connections between brain areas that usually don't communicate so much. Mm -hmm. And what happens then is that you, you get what is called a gamma burst or gamma oscillations. And this is a very, very quick activity in the brain and lots of neurons firing together at the same moment. So your brain is basically connecting the dots. And this only happens when we are not so focused on the problem because when you're so focused on the problem and so trying to solve the problem you're just engaging your prefrontal cortex for rational thinking and not so much the rest of your brain so you go into setting the stage on how to help create aha moments a little bit in the book can you talk a little bit how we can encourage that amongst our organizations yes Well, the most important thing actually is your mood. It has been shown that people who are in a good mood will have more creative insight. So mood is a very important factor. If you're in a bad mood, if you're overly stressed out, you won't have many good ideas. You might be able to think straight, you know, and to solve a problem rationally, but you won't be so creative. So for creativity and innovation, mood is really relevant. Another thing to think about is the fact that silence is very good for creativity. I don't know if you've heard of this, but, you know, many people use brainstorming. Mm -hmm. They go, they gather a lot of people in a room and they say, you know, when you have an idea, just shout it into the room and we, we write it up on the flip chart. This is not very helpful because it has been shown that people have best ideas actually when there's not so much going on around them and when they're silent. So they had a group of people who did, you know, 
a vocalized brainstorming where you would speak the moment something comes to your mind, you would raise your hand and say, oh, I have an idea, blah, 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 something like this. And then you had another group where people also thought about the same problem, but everyone did it for themselves. And they had lots better results in the second group. Hmm. So if you want to have good ideas, it's probably a good idea to maybe, you know, that's why people so often have good ideas when they take the shower, because you usually, at least most people take the shower by themselves. <laughs> you know, you are alone. Right. You can focus just on yourself and you don't have somebody to talk to. And this is when good ideas happen. So I would encourage people to do whatever they can to, to have a positive mood and to spend more time by themselves. One last question here on the book. And you talk about developing the team of the future. Can you talk a little bit about that and and how team development is important? Yes. I think when you're in a team, one thing to understand is that everybody's different, you know, and from a brain perspective, we should embrace those differences. And what people usually do is that they like to hire people who are similar to themselves. And they encourage a work environment, which is perfect for them, but not so good for somebody else. Mm. And I like to, you know, work strength-based. So I think it's very important to understand that people are different and that we get the best out of people if we let each and one of them use their strength at work. So you should create a work environment that really allows people to let their strength play. Technically, what does this mean? For example, if I'm an extrovert, right, I will set up maybe an office space, an open office space where everybody can talk to each other. I will encourage a lot of meetings. I will throw a lot of parties and I will think that this will bring out the best of my people, right? Because Mm -hmm. that's how I work best. That, you know, from this leader's perspective, when in reality, what will happen is that a part of the people will work good in this environment and for other people it's living hell (laughs) you know there was a recent i think last week there was a harvard study come out that looked at the effect of open office spaces and it showed that it actually decreases communication between people it has shown that the moment people are put into an open office space some kind of threat impulse comes up in the brain and people communicate less they send more emails they call it other but they don't walk over to somebody's desk to solve a problem Hmm. it actually impedes communication because then people find other ways to distance themselves from other people because in a normal office you have a little bit of privacy and in an open office space for example you have people sitting around you all over the place and this can trigger a threat response in, in most people so one thing to think about when you work in a team is to not create a setting that works best for you, but to think about individual differences. Some people might be introverts. They might enjoy to to focus on their work by themselves. You know, some people might want to focus most on numbers. So let them work on the numbers. Some people might have more verbal talents. Let them work with, with that. When in reality, when I CHR departments and leadership development, very often people get sent to a coach when they have a problem. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I get a call and they say, oh, this guy, could you work with him? He, whatever he does, you know. And 
I think that's not necessarily the best approach. You should use coaching to bring out the best in people. I'm not saying that you should ignore problematic behavior and just accept it. But coaching is a tool and leadership development works best when you work on people's strengths. If you already have a talent, you should foster the talent and help people get even better in that. And that's when you really drive company performance. Right. And yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, you wouldn't tell somebody who uh, is missing a leg that he has to go, uh, you know, run a marathon. Unless, exactly. You know, you know so unless you develop a leg to help him to do that. And that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Well, we're coming here close to the end of the, uh, to the, to the show here. And a couple of questions left. One is, is, if somebody wanted to find more out about what you're doing, how could they find that information? Yeah, I would encourage you to go to fabulous-brain.com. That's my webpage. And I have a lot of information there, articles, interviews, videos. You can also find information about the book on my webpage. So it's fabulous-brain.com, fabulousbrain.com. And awesome, and we'll put that information down in the in the show notes as well, everybody. So if you're driving down the road, don't worry about grabbing a pencil out and writing that down. You know, stay safe, and and we'll put that in the show notes. So when you get home, you can you can check that out. And then, so last question, and I'm I'm going to tell you, you can't recommend your own book because I'm already recommending that everybody buys and reads the, the Leading Brain. So that's there. What book or, or other research would you recommend to people who are really interested in team development and actually scientifically based team development? Well, there's two books I really love. One, it might be a bit bizarre because um, it's actually a book about love, but I think it's really genius and it's really fantastic. It's a book by Dr. Helen Fisher. It's called Why Him, Why Her? How to Find Love by Understanding Your Personality Type. It's basically about the neurochemistry of personality. She has since then moved on and she's now working in a business setting and she has evolved her test setting from a love background to, you know, to helping people in business work together better and, and or to, to, to collaborate better. This is a book I really enjoyed, which I think is also helpful in the business setting, not just on how to find love. Okay. So it might be a bit bizarre recommendation, but I really think this book is mind-opening. And another book I really liked was, um, it's called Gut Decisions by a professor called Gerd Gigerenser. And basically his book is about the fact that we, and when I think it's so relevant for your community of emergency managers, this book is about the fact that you should use your intuition and how our brain rapidly clusters information to form an intuition. So this is basically about decision-making in emergency situations, you know, how, when can you trust your intuition and when shouldn't you? So I think it's called Gut Decisions, A Shortcut to Better Decision Making. And I, I really found this book mind-opening as well. Frederica, thank you so much for being on the show today. And um, everybody that's out here on, on my book recommendation, obviously it's going to be The Leading Brain. It's a powerful science-based strategies for achieving peak performance. I think it's a, a really well-written book. It's not a, a wonky book. It, it really is fun to read. A lot of great information, a lot of great stories in here. And it really, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm highlighting areas in the book and I'm, I'm doing this and, and it really is, uh, is captivating. So thank you so much for writing the book first of all and, uh, and like I said I highly recommend it to anybody who's out there uh, and who's out there read, wants to read a book, this book is there anything else you'd like to say before we let you go 
Well, I hope that you benefit from this book. I think you guys are making such a great difference in people's life. You know, you're saving lives, you're helping people in crisis. So if I can contribute to this even a little bit, that would be fantastic. I would be so grateful. And that's, yeah. But for me, it, you know, it's, it's when you reached out to me for the podcast, I thought, wow, this is so interesting. You know, I'm usually in these business settings and, you know, I think there's a lot of relevance in my book for people working in emergency situations that have to make so quick decisions and they really have an impact. If a business leader makes a bad decision, he might lose some money, but nobody dies. Right. So I... Uh, if I can inspire some of you guys or help you to stay sane in a very stressful environment, that would make me very happy. Yeah, well, definitely we'll do that. So thank you so much for, for what you do. Uh, thank you for being on the show. And uh, I'd like to do this again sometime. Thank you. Thank you so much.